0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On June 30th, 2009, a black Nissan Sentra was found submerged in the Rideau Canal in Ontario, Canada. On the outset, it seemed like a tragic accident, but a deeper look would reveal a clash of cultures centered around a family's honor. But to the community, it was an act of betrayal that would shock the entire country. This is the Shafia family story dedicated to Zainab, Sahar, Gidi, and Rona. Amy, so good to see you in the studio and back on campus. I know, we get to
1: share an office. I mean, what could be better?
0: I know, but we usually don't wind up on the same days. But this semester, we're pretty much sharing a day together. It's good that we don't wind up on the same days, because when we're there, we don't get much done. We shut our door and we talk amongst ourselves.
1: Meeting in progress do not disturb. <laughs> I know, it's terrible.
0: No, seriously, we're there for our students. But um, it's a good thing we're not in office together all the time.
1: It's also good we're not in the office at the same time, because you don't like the way I keep my desk. And no. it drives you crazy. So. No,
0: thank you and that's a good reveal so I'm a neat freak I like everything neat Amy is a slob yep her <laughs> folders are everywhere her desk has no order she has post-its everywhere you know pens she even left when I came in the office the other day she even left the chair all the way out so that I had to push her chair and just to get to my desk
1: I'm so sorry yep. Um. that would be a cute Instagram picture of her yes. desk's yes okay. mental note okay side note okay mm-hmm. All right.
0: Well, I'm glad that we both had a nice break. It's spring semester mm-hmm. um, and we're refreshed. We're ready to go. And we're also excited uh, to be recording. So today's case is one that was suggested by both a patron and another listener who emailed us. And I think it is a very unique case and a topic we have not covered before. I'm really looking forward to the analysis, but we also want to thank these great supporters of ours before we get going today. So who do we have to
1: thank? All right, Megan. We have two international supporters I want to start with. Really? Yes. Angelica from Germany. And I have to say, Angelica wrote us such a lovely letter on Patreon. You should go check it out if you haven't seen it yet, Megan. But, you know, she was asking if there's any way to have access to the classes we teach. And if I had a dollar for every time someone asked us that, we gotta we're working on something, listeners. So just, you know.
0: I was going to say that. Well, that's a great question. And we are working on something to release to you guys all. So stay tuned.
1: Yes. We also have Berg Run from Iceland. Thank you so much. Wow. We have Beth Boys. Do you have anyone else?
0: Yes. We are very lucky to have Darlene from Connecticut next door, RJ Garvey, Danny and Emily.
1: And I think we have someone else, Amy, right? Yes, we have a very special person, a friend of mine, who I noticed was a supporter, which I find so sweet. Thank you, Amanda. That is so nice of you. You know, she's been listening since day one of Direct Appeal. We really, really appreciate you. And
0: funny that you have a friend, Amanda, because I also have a friend, Amanda, from college, who we used to call Demanda. She's a listener, and I'm so grateful, and I miss her. Can't wait to see her. And now, on to the Shafia family episode. Today's story begins in 2008 when the Shafia family immigrate to Canada. Originally from Afghanistan, they left the country when civil war erupted. There's a lot of players here, so you better pay attention, Amy, okay? And everyone else, uh, because this took me a little bit to master as well. Mohammed Shafia, the head of the family, ran a very successful import-export business. His wife, Tuba, ran the household, and together the pair had seven children. We're not gonna discuss all of the children. Prior to Canada, they had lived in Dubai for quite some time, and Mohammed still made frequent and long business trips to Dubai. And while he was gone, eldest son, Hamed, was in charge, but he wasn't the oldest child. He was the eldest son. Mohammed's daughter, Zainab, was the oldest, followed by her brother, Hamed, sisters, Sahar and Gidi, and two younger girls and a younger brother. Those two younger girls and the younger brother aren't really... Integral to today's story, and because they were minors, they're they're protected. So we want to just maintain their anonymity. Rona, an adult female, also lived with them, and even though she was thought to be a nanny by outsiders, she was actually Mohammed's first wife. Okay, you look a little surprised.
1: So, is this polygamy?
0: Okay, so yes, it is. What happened was that Rona could not have children. And I guess she and Mohammed tried for quite some time. I believe they also went for um, fertility treatments. But in the end, she just could not produce any children. So she gave basically her approval. Um, She consented to Mohammed taking on a second wife so that they could bear children. And so they, they can continue the family name.
1: So did the three of the adults raise the children together?
0: They did. Um, and you'll find out how this this relationship evolved. But essentially, Rona was also partnered with uh, Muhammad in choosing um, Tuba. So she gave her approval of Tuba. She participated. But this would be a decision she would later come to regret because while Rona got along quite well with Tuba's children, Tuba and Muhammad's children, um, she was described as very caring towards them. She did not share the same relationship with Tuba. In fact, Tuba was quite mean to Rona and treated her like a servant rather than family. So Rona was the the motherly caretaking warm one, and Tuba was like the house administrator. She was the strict Mm -hmm. one. Um, From what I understand, she was not very warm and fuzzy. The children were expected to abide by the cultural norms of traditional Islam, even though their family wasn't very religious in practice. But Mohammed subscribed to these norms, and this precluded dating and many other forms of westernization. In fact, Mohammed wanted to arrange marriages for all of his daughters, but the girls had very different plans. Zainab, the eldest, was allowed to attend the same language school as her brother Hamed so that Hamed could essentially keep watch over her. I'll get to their ages shortly, but at the time Zainab was allowed to attend the school, uh, I believe she was 17 or Mm -hmm. 18, and he was about a year behind her, so very close in age, but because culturally he was the boy and he was the eldest, he was expected to be kind of second in line. Mm -hmm. He watched over the girls in school. He watched over the household. He was, again, he was next in line. Eventually, a young man named Amar Wahid also went to the same school as Zainab and as Hamed. And Amar had developed a crush on Zainab. He was too shy to talk to her, though, so he sent her a Valentine's Day card and expressed that he was interested. He wrote, I'd like to be your friend, I'd like to know you, and if you think this is appropriate, and if you accept my friendship wear a white dress tomorrow. Aw, that's cute. It's fair. And the next day she was dressed in all white. Aw. I think that's really sweet. We talked about that. I think just think that was really very, very sweet. More notes would pass and they would begin to talk on the phone, but it had to be very much in secret.
1: Did he also follow Islamic traditions? And if so, are the boys allowed to like court the girls?
0: It's a really good question. He was Pakistani. And I think that his family also expected him to marry someone or select someone also who was Pakistani. So
1: it was a little bit forbidden on his end as well.
0: It was very forbidden. And it's interesting that you say that because I watched an episode of Forbidden, Dying for Love, because it was one that featured it. But yes, it was forbidden on both ends. However, I think that the danger was more so on Zainab's side because she was a female. Mm-hmm. And and you'll see how that relates. But it, it's a good question, Amy. So they, yeah, they were passing notes. They were talking to each other. I don't think that Amar was worried for himself, but Zainab certainly was. They had to hide this relationship. And from what I understand, Hamed was always on top of Zainab. I mean, like she was under his watch all the time. Um. So what happened was that they would find small ways to meet up. So they would go to the library and meet up in there. But they, they had to talk quickly. They had to talk in secret. She had to hide the phone calls. And she was terribly afraid of Mohammed and Hamed. I think she was really terrified of Hamed, um, as I understand most of the girls were. And also of Tuba. The three of them were almost like three parents, three authoritarians, so to speak. So she would warn Amar that he had to act like a complete stranger when Hamed was around so that he would not suspect anything in the relationship. Unfortunately, that would come to change because one day in March 2008, when Mohammed, the father, was away on a business trip and Tuba was gone, Zainab invited Amar to their home.
1: Did Tuba usually go
0: traveling with Mohammed? She didn't always travel with Mohammed, but when she did, they left Hamed
1: in charge. I was going to ask if Rona was in charge when they left. No, No, Rona was not in charge
0: because it was male dominated. So no, Rona was not in charge. Hamed was. And this was a day, so Tuba and Mohammed were both gone, and Zainab thought the house was empty, and she didn't think her brother, you know, he was, I don't know what he, where he was, to be honest, but she didn't think he was going to return home. But unfortunately for her, uh, Hamed came home unexpectedly, and though she hid Omar, Hamed found him, and the consequences were severe. Hamed beat her and forced her to do homeschooling. Beat her? Yes. Not him. No, he didn't touch him, but he beat her. And he forced her to do homeschooling from there on out. She was essentially imprisoned in her own home. She lost all privileges. The family believed that they had the right to choose Zainab's suitor, and she did not. So all of these punishments that were meted out were really meant to control Zainab and her sexuality. This went on for a long time too, Amy. The isolation and the punishment, I
1: think it went on for close to a year Can you imagine that? Who was homeschooling her, the brother or the parents?
0: Well, I don't know who was actually doing the schooling. I don't know if she was doing it herself, if it was a program, if it was Rona, if it was Tuba, but she was forced to do it from the home and she wasn't allowed to attend the language school anymore. Around the same time, Zainab's sister, Sahar, who was about 16, essentially she began to test these boundaries set by Mohammed and Hamed with a relationship with a boy from Honduras. And although she was trying to hide it like Zainab was, Hamed found pictures of the pair on her phone and alerted his parents who were very angry. So now you have Zainab and Sahar and the parents are blaming Zainab, saying that she set the example from Sahar. In fact, I think it was Zainab who introduced Sahar to her boyfriend. And
1: Sahar is also a teenager at this time?
0: Yeah, so if Zainab is, you know, at this time about 18, Sahar is about 16. Okay. There's a couple of years that separate them. Giti, who is a younger sister, she's about 13 or 14 at the time, as well, begins showing signs of, quote, Westernization, skipping school a lot, wearing makeup and Western clothes. She was also the one who stood up to her father the most. And when Child Welfare Services visited the home because they did, Giti would tell them the truth about her father's beatings and Hamed's beatings. You see, the reason why uh, child services came, because I knew you were going to ask that next, I could see, Sahar had attempted suicide. She'd attempted suicide, and she told school authorities about the conditions in her home and how afraid she was on more than one occasion from her father and her brother. And even though authorities visited the home and met with the family, they decided not to pursue charges, a decision that I'm sure they would later come to regret.
1: Now, do you think that has to do with trying to respect one's culture and not getting involved in family matters? Or what do you think that's about? I think even though Gidi
0: had said that there was, um, I read that Gidi had reported the beatings, but that she later kind of recanted it. And I think it's because they were so afraid of Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I do think there was probably some, you know, trying to be respectful of cultural differences. Mm -hmm. But I also think that the campaign of terror against the girls kept them from, Mm -hmm. you know, kept them quiet. Good question, though. Now, around April 2009, Zainab ran away from home and went to a women's shelter in Montreal and resumed her relationship with Amar. The family called the police, but at this time, Zainab had turned 19, so she could refuse to go home. She's an adult. Uh, And her family, by the way, was so angry about this. I mean, this was like the ultimate form of betrayal. She had left them. She was not in their control anymore. So unless her family would allow her to be with Amar Zainab was not going to go home. And shockingly, the family agreed. Because as I said, losing control of their family and having Zainab run away was very embarrassing for them as well. It's not just that it angered them. It was a a form of disrespect and it was embarrassing.
1: Why do I have a feeling they were
0: lying to her? Well, because you have good insights. We'll see. As you said, they might have been lying to her. Maybe they really were, you know, happy to have her back home or maybe there were ulterior motives. On the surface, though, they seemed to understand that it was a choice between losing her or losing their honor completely. And those were the two choices for them. Tuba had brokered support for this decision, agreeing to allow Amar and Zainab to get married. So that was kind of the condition, though. I know it's, it sounds like, wow, now all of a sudden they're like... Letting... That
1: escalated. Yeah, quick.
0: But that was the way to keep the honor. Not that they would see each other, that they would be married.
1: That makes sense.
0: It does. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. On some level. Okay. And in May 2009, they even attended the wedding, uh, the family, uh, but things went terribly awry at the church. So what happened at the church was that Ammar's family didn't show up because they also did not support the marriage.
1: Because they were Pakistani, right? And wanted him to marry. Okay. That's correct. But because Ammar's
0: family didn't show up, the Shafia took this as a personal insult and an attack on their honor again. And again, brought by Zainab and Amar's relationship. Zainab was crushed and called off the public wedding, even though Amar still wanted to marry her. The damage was done, though. She really was upset. Her family was upset. The Shafia family had been publicly humiliated. They had married earlier in a cultural uh, ceremony, but it wasn't made public, and the marriage was annulled in less than 24 hours after the wedding. Zainab broke off the relationship and went back home to live with her family. And even though Amar was brokenhearted and Zainab was also, things were better seemingly in the Shafia home. In June 2009, Mohammed even suggested that they take a family trip to Niagara Falls. Everyone was so excited. But that's because they had no idea what was to take place on this trip. (laughs) The family took two vehicles because they had a big family. So they took a black Nissan Sentra and a silver Lexus. Hamed drove the three older girls. So he drove with Zainab, Sahar, and Giti. And then the other car was Muhammad, Tuba, and their other small children. Okay. They went to Niagara Falls and reportedly had a fun trip taking and sending pictures. And everything went smoothly until they got ready to make the log drive home. After several hours of driving, the family decided to stop at a motel in Kingston Mills area along the Rideau Canal for the night. They got their rooms and Zainab reportedly knocked on her parents' door at the hotel. And this was the evening of June 29th, 2009, asking for the keys to the car late that evening because she reportedly needed something out of her bag.
1: And just remind me, which daughter is that?
0: Okay, Zainab was the oldest, the one with whom the relationship with Amar had just fallen apart. Yes.
1: According to her parents,
0: that was the last time anyone saw Zainab. The next morning, a panicked Tuba Mohammed and Hamed went to the police station to report Zainab, Sahar, Giti, and Rona missing, along with their black Nissan Sentra. But at this point, the police had already found the car. They had been called to investigate a vehicle submerged in the canal, and they noticed that there were bodies inside the vehicle. In fact, they found all four women's bodies, and it was indeed the Shafia women, and the police began an official investigation. The police, after, you know, making this finding and after having the family come down, they were perplexed by this situation. There were so many questions here. How did these women get there, all four of them? Was this an accident? Because you have, you know, it looks like a car has gone off, you know, the road into the canal. Or was this something more sinister? They needed to interview the family immediately. First, you know, call, interview the family members, because they wanted to put together a timeline and see if they could figure out a reason why all four women might have taken the car late at night. They interviewed Hamed. For people who are interested, you can watch Hamed's interview. You know, there's clips of it on YouTube. It's also on, uh, I think they play clips, if I'm not mistaken, on the show that I watch, Forbidden, Dying for Love. Um, what Hamed said was that Zainab didn't have a license, but... Always begged to drive, so it was possible that she decided to take a joyride or to leave early and convince the others to join because they all wanted to get home to their boyfriends and their friends. I mean, a little strange. What about
1: Rona? She's an adult. How do they explain her being there?
0: Right, and maybe Rona, you know, being the caretaker, motherly type, maybe they convinced her to go along, or maybe she didn't want them to go alone because she was, you know, the care ta- you know, uh, the caring type. This is strange, but detectives were considering the possibility of an accident, though, again, the fact that Rona was with them, if it was the three girls, they would have, this would have been, uh, yeah, this is a possibility, but the adults having, Rona was 52 years old at the time, this was definitely a red flag for them. Also, they had the car, and the police noticed a few things that were odd if this was an accident. First, the ignition was off, and it shouldn't be. If they drove off a road into the water, the ignition would still be on.
1: Yes, that's definitely a red flag.
0: Red flag, one. Next, the driver's window was down and the water wasn't that deep at all. I mean, you, the car, you could see the car. So the water, we're talking about a couple of feet. So if the driver's window's down and it's only a couple feet, at least someone could have maybe swam out, okay? The autopsies showed that the women had drowned, but they all had contusions to the tops of their heads that happened before death. So it seems that this might not be an accident at all. And now detectives were trying to figure out who would want to kill these women.
1: It looked like they were thunked on the head, basically. So they all had similar head injuries that were not indicative of like a car crash type injury. Correct. That's exactly right. Well
0: summed up, Amy. In interviews with the family, they insinuated that Amar, remember Zainab's ex, you know, the ex-husband or, you know, that he was very angry with Zainab, feeling quite betrayed, and that he was so angry that they should look at him as a suspect. So the police investigated Amar, keeping this motive in mind, but it was still hard to understand how and why he would have killed all these
1: other women. How far were they from home at this point? How far is Niagara Falls from where they were in Canada, they were several hours away from home. And what a meant Amar would have had to go find where they
0: were, it just doesn't seem... Plausible, plausible, right? Um, there was no cell phone messages. You know, if maybe Zainab had told them, "Look, we're staying here," but there was no communication. It just didn't make sense. And I think the police, honestly, were pretty quickly able to rule Amar out during the investigation. The Shafia family, meanwhile, they allowed press into their homes, and they shared photos. They cried on the news. They appeared to be so completely distraught. I totally encourage people to look at this because you would be pretty convinced that they were very, very upset and distraught over this over the deaths of their family members. The police were becoming suspicious, though, of Hamed, because Hamed said that he had gone back to Montreal in the Lexus, the second car, in the middle of the night on that evening when the girls disappeared, because he had to get his laptop, and it was important for work purposes. But it was several hours
1: away, right?
0: Yes. And when the police asked him why he returned, in, because he came back, Why he returned in a minivan and not the Lexus. I mean, you took the Lexus and then he comes back in a minivan. He didn't have a very good answer saying something like the gas or mileage was better on the minivan than the Lexus. No,
1: that doesn't make sense. Oh,
0: this is like police are like, this is way off. This doesn't make sense. This guy says he's leaving. It's coming back. Where's this car? Why is this car disappeared? This is like, you know, alarms are going off here or bells are going off. Then a finding then that confirmed police suspicions. They found like parts or pieces of the front of the Lexus at the crime scene. So why would there be pieces of the Lexus and why were they hiding the Lexus? Because that's how it also seemed. Tuba's brother also contacted the police to let them know that Mohammed had mentioned drowning Zainab as a way to manage his problems with her. So now police realized this might be a family conspiracy. Turns out that even if Zainab got married, Mohammed was still discussing killing her after she got married, even on our honeymoon, drowning her. Yeah. So police are like, okay, so now they suspected Hamed, but now they're like, Mohammed and Hamed? Okay. Then they discover, the police discover that Rona is Mohammed's wife, even though he had lied about his relationship with her. So now
1: Tuba has a motive.
0: Well, now they're like, why is he concealing this completely? Oh, because they, ne- they just said Rona was like the babysitter. He lied. He lied to the police about the relationship, oh. saying, I don't know, he, he had told someone that Rona was a babysitter, but he also told someone that he was, she was a cousin who was like a caretaker. Okay. I mean, he told a couple different lies, and the police found out that he was wrong. And as it turns out, Rona desperately wanted out of the marriage, having been abused regularly by Tuba, Mohammed, and Hamed, but Mohammed would not allow a divorce. It was, again, shameful. You won't divorce me. You won't leave me. So
1: was he also married to Tuba? Yes. He was legally married to both women?
0: Yes. And we're going to talk about how this was a problem and why he was concealing it in a little bit. Okay. The police are getting some real bombshells here. And there's a picture that's beginning to come together. Both Mohammed and Hamed have become prime suspects, but they would still have to prove who did what. They still have, like a lot of missing parts. They have multiple suspects, which does complicate things. So they did something very smart. The police, they tricked the family into believing they were just awaiting surveillance tapes from the crime scene. So they offered to take the family back to the crime scene, but as a way to see, to pay respect to the final resting place. Mm -hmm. And then when the family was there, the police were talking in the background. Um, They pointed out a camera and said, oh, yeah, they had placed that camera. So they placed the camera there and said, oh yeah, we're just waiting for tapes to come back from
1: that uh, camera. So now they're all panicking.
0: They were doing this in a way that wasn't accusatory because they didn't want to scare, they wanted to scare them, but they didn't want to scare them away by accusing them and pointing a finger. They just wanted to kind of lay a trap. Meanwhile, the police placed a wiretap in the Shafia family vehicle to hear what they would say after the meeting. Mm. And it was a real shocker. Mohammed turns to Tuba and says, remember that there was no electricity there that night, Right. Okay, police, this is another bombshell because they just realized Tuba's also involved. Oh, jeez. So now we've got Hamed, Mohamed, and Tuba. But Tuba said that she thought it was a police bluff. And the family all agreed, just so you know, that it was a good thing that they had regained their honor. Mohamed called the girls worthless and of no value to him and his family. And they all agreed. They were all happy about the girls being gone.
1: That's still not the evidence they need, though.
0: Well... It was when he, yeah, the evidence they need, you remember there was no electricity there that night. Oh, certainly is. That's enough. But yeah. him saying just that, the, you know, the girls yeah. were of no value to him. Mm-hmm. No, that's yeah. not evidence of a crime. And that might be something Mohammed would point to later. But anyway, they they did have this acknowledgement that they, they were at the crime scene. They all acknowledge it, the three mm-hmm. of them. So the police got search warrants for their home um, and they found out that they had been planning and researching the murders for quite some time. They looked up. Lots of different vacation areas near lakes. They looked up drowning. They looked up murder. So, you know, this was also crucial evidence for the investigation.
1: Do people not know? I mean, this wasn't that long ago, a decade less, more than a decade ago. Do people not know that the police can see your Google history?
0: I always wonder that. I don't understand the cell phones and the Google history. I think that they were so arrogant that they didn't think the police would ever come in. That's yeah. what I really think, yeah. to be honest. Um I think other pe- some people just don't think about it. Mm-hmm. They don't know or they think you can delete your web browser history. You can delete you can't delete anything. But now at this point the police have everything they need and they're ready to make arrests. So they arrest Mohammed, Hamed and Tuba and all three are charged with first degree murder. At trial because this would go to trial, the story of this family came out in full. The honor code that they thought the girls had violated had motivated their murders. All three, Mohammed, Tuba, and Hamed, were involved, though it's unclear as to whether they rendered all four women unconscious. So remember they had those contusions to the head? The pathologists just couldn't say for sure. They speculated, but the prosecution speculated that the reason they drowned and they, they didn't escape was because they were knocked unconscious. Got it. And that's what the And contusions. then they pushed them
1: into the water. Exactly.
0: But the pathologists couldn't say for sure. What is very clear is that all three, meaning Mohammed, Tuba, and Hamed, got into the Lexus together and used it to push the Nissan Sentra over the edge into the canal, which explains why the pieces of the Lexus were found there. I think that the car got stuck on the lip, like the overhang. And I don't think the Lexus was originally intended to push the car. I think that was just a consequence. And that was something that was very damning.
1: Who was driving the Sentra though?
0: Either uh, I forget one who is the drive- other people. Uh, Rona or Zainab was in. I think it might have been Rona, but but so the idea was that no one would ever know they knocked him unconscious. They would just be found and it would look like an
1: accident they had accidentally gone off into the canal. So you think maybe Tuba was driving the Sentra and then placed one of the bodies in the driver's seat or something. I'm saying someone had to drive yeah, the Sentra to the Oh, canal. okay. I'm sorry. I was misunderstood. You know, what yeah, you mean? of course, okay. yeah, someone uh, so you one think of the that- three drove the yeah, one of Cuz I'm th- saying it doesn't make sense that they would there's any situation where they would have been able to talk the women into getting into the car for any reason no they absolutely
0: believe that they were knocked unconscious placed in the car and then you know and it wasn't far from their motel too so that'd be some really hard hits Mm -hmm. i'm surprised the pathologist are i'm not entirely surprised you know but you can't always tell what the is. i'm assuming they
1: did toxicology i'm wondering if the girls were sedated in some way but they were not they were not
0: yeah their their scans were clean so they Mm -hmm. were not sedated which is, again, lends more credence to the fact all four of them obviously didn't get into that central yeah. willingly. Mm-hmm. They were clearly hit with something, rendered unconscious in some way that was not- There was not- no
1: blood splatter or anything like that? No, no. Because they were probably hit somewhere else. Somewhere else. else. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, so
0: uh, all four women died of drowning. That's absolutely clear. So why Rona? We've heard about the girls. You know, the girls, all three of them are becoming westernized and defiant, according, you know, quote unquote, according to their families. But what about Rona? Speculation about Rona is that she was no longer very useful to the family, but as first wife, she would have inherited the money if anything happened to Mohammed. So her death would eliminate both problems, problems with her inheritance and problems with the girls. A second reason was that she was having problems with immigration and finalizing her status. You see, polygamy is not allowed in Canada. It's illegal. So they had to defraud the state as to who Rona was. And if they got caught, they'd be deported. Um. So these are two powerful motivators for them to get rid of Rona, unfortunately for her. Mohammed and Tuba took the stand during this very charged trial, saying that, yes, the girls had dishonored them, and yes, they called them very bad names after their death, but they never would have killed them. Mohammed made no attempt to hide his feelings, though, about the girls, saying that God gave them what they deserved. He said this on the stand in his defense. But he denied being part of it. Yes, Tuba maintained that she would never have hurt her children. She tried to play the loving mother role. Both implied that it was, again, a rebellious Zainab who was responsible for the deaths in this accident. So Zainab was driving, and they said it was her fault.
1: Oh, because they put her in the driver's seat. Correct.
0: And what happened to the son? Hamed was another story, though. While he didn't testify, he had already given some very damaging statements, placing himself at the scene of the crime, but only him, not his parents. He stayed loyal to his parents to the very end. That's not surprising. No, it wasn't surprising. His story was that the girls took the Sentra for a joyride. No explanation as to why Rona would be with them, Mm -hmm. really, perhaps for a chaperone, but that he had seen them and essentially followed them in what turned out to be a chase, and he accidentally forced them off the edge by getting too
1: close to their But didn't call the police or try to jump in and help them. Of course not. Well...
0: You know, you're shaking your head, and this may not be a surprise to you, but the jury didn't buy any of their stories, and all three were found guilty at trial and received life sentences. All right, Amy, I don't think the outcome was a surprise here, but this brings up a topic that we haven't discussed before on the show. So let's discuss honor-based violence. Honor killing is the murder of a woman by male family members in response to the belief that the woman has dishonored in some way or brought shame to the family.
1: It's only the killing of a woman. You can't have an honor killing of a male?
0: You can have an honor killing of a male, but it's typically women. It's almost always women, yes. There, is wh- there are ways that males can bring shame to the family. I was
1: gonna say, you know, if, you know, if a male maybe comes out as
0: you yes. know, homosexual or, you know, It's I would... possible, but this is predominantly gender-based violence against women. Okay. Yeah. The killing is the way that the males preserve the honor in the eyes of their families and their neighbors. So it's really about public perception. Women are viewed as property in most of these cultures where honor killings prevail, and women are expected to obey their brothers, fathers, and husbands. Hands down, no questions. Women who have been raped are also at risk, as they are thought to have shamed the families as well. You probably know this already. Estimates are that at least 5,000 women are killed per year in honor killings. This is globally. I was just
1: going to ask globally. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: These are, again, usually young women who have been alleged to have committed some act of Sexual impropriety or women who are perceived as becoming too westernized and therefore they are defying their cultural expectations. Honor killings are most prevalent in the Middle East and in particular, Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, and South Asia, Pakistan, and India. Doesn't mean they don't happen anywhere else and doesn't mean they always happen there, but that's where they're most prevalent. The methods for honor killings vary, but they have included burning, stoning, beheading, drowning, They usually involve some form of torture, to be honest. As Westerners, I don't think we can understand this type of violence or we have trouble, but it is cultural and it is not a part of our culture per se. But many of these countries also, just so you know, have actually outlawed these honor killings, but they don't bring down the full force of the law when they happen. so even if the law exists on the books, they still allow for the practice. It's still somewhat culturally permissible. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Okay. Sorry. It's illegal, but not deviant. Ah, oh my right? gosh, that deviant, was brilliant. Yeah, thank you. Now, <laughs> deviant behavior is behavior that departs from social norms. Not all deviant behavior is criminal, but not all criminal behavior is deviant. Like for example, when I teach this in class, I'll say, you know, speeding. Speeding's illegal, but not, as long as you're only going a little over the speed limit and not putting anyone in danger, speeding is not something that you would be, you know, informally sanctioned for, right? Yeah. So great example and
0: brilliant point, Amy. Thank you. What can be done here in terms of it still being culturally permissible? It's difficult. International laws could enforce harsher punishments for these countries who aren't enforcing their own laws. Certainly, we need a better review of the practices and more research on this topic. Absolutely. Ultimately, though, Amy, it would be also difficult to try to change cultures, especially from the outside in. So it's a matter of how do you get it's almost like when we talk about social disorganization. Like, it's not up to us to, you know, organize certain areas. It's how do you help people to organize themselves? Mm -hmm. So how do you help a culture to, you know, transform some of their norms? Mm -hmm. Regardless, in Canada, this is not permissible. It's illegal. And they brought down the full force of the law. And obviously, in the United States, we don't permit this type of violence as well.
1: Any idea how often it occurs, even though it's not permitted? I, I think it's a very rare event in the U.S. I certainly
0: know of a couple of cases, and we've had listeners write in, but it's not, it, it's not prevalent, nor is it common um, here in the United States. Let's talk about theory. This is the first time we've covered this type of case, and the first time we've really discussed honor-based violence on this show. I discussed it in my classes. But I'd like to know, Amy, what criminological
1: theory does this tie to to explain how this happened? I know you're going to know it. Culture conflict theory. How? Why? The Shafia subculture rejected certain cultural goals and means of our mainstream culture. So they had their own values and norms and their own definitions of deviance. That's absolutely right. And their definitions of deviance were in direct contradiction to conventional definitions of normality and deviance.
0: Amy said it brilliantly, but yeah, I mean, that's the best way to say it. Their subculture essentially conflicted with, you know, our mainstream culture, and they chose adhering to their cultural norms as opposed to society's norms. So I think that's definitely a cultural theory for me here is the explanation for why these crimes happened. We often find that these theories also explain Gang related crimes where a gang requires, let's say illegal activities, right your your you know initiation I mean a lot of activities are illegal in a gang and your allegiance or someone's allegiance to the gang becomes more important than abiding by mainstream societal rules. um so that's just another example of crimes we can explain using cultural theory
1: well, and going back, we covered this on one of our patron episodes. Right? a lot of these theories can also help us understand cult involvement absolutely. good point. yeah.
0: I always cite, when I teach cultural theory, I always cite uh, "Code of the Street by Elijah Anderson. Uh, You read it, right? I read it in graduate school. Yep. Okay. Well, that's where I read it. We went to the same graduate school. That makes sense. Um, It's a fantastic book. Everyone should read it. Everyone should read it. It's a
1: little old at this point, as we are, but it is good. (laughs) Yeah, it is. They probably have like a newer edition at this point.
0: I don't know. I don't actually think the book's been updated, but it explains how certain members of society are so alienated from mainstream society. By the way, that's strain theory, too because they're blocked from opportunities. So they form their own subculture where the focus becomes about respect and violence to keep that respect. And even though those crimes are different than the one we discussed today, the main point is, is not. I mean, the main point is that they used violence as a way to secure honor, or at least what they perceived as honor. Obviously we don't perceive it to be honorable, uh, to murder your family members. It's and subjective,
1: honor subjective.
0: That's true. I wanted to also point out. This is just a geek note. Um, when I teach cultural theory, I usually teach it after learning theory. I don't know if you teach it the same, but we usually look at learning theory or differential reinforcement. You know, you learn behaviors from someone else, or you know, we. I look at that as like a micro level theory, and then you know, so, someone learns on an individual level, and then cultural theory is like the macro level theory where culture is the teacher.
1: It's interesting that you say that because in some of these cases that you hear of. It's the younger generation that is pushing against these outdated definitions or values and norms, because the, you would think with social learning that they would act the way they, their parents act, right? Yeah. But that's not the case. And this in this case, it's certainly not the case. It look, sounds like all the children were rebelling.
0: They were rebelling, except for the eldest, yeah, mm-hmm. but they were absolutely rebelling. And unfortunately, they paid the price for it. Okay, we've covered the theory part. Final conclusions here. They were caught, all three, punished appropriately, but I'm just going to say it, Amy. This is one where I would be absolutely comfortable with the death penalty, even though Canada doesn't do the death penalty anymore. Amy, what are your thoughts on justice being served?
1: Life without parole, you said? Yeah. Yeah, that's For me, that's justice being served. I feel bad for those poor children. There are younger children, and now they're growing up with no family. So, you know, we forgot that they're additional victims here. All
0: of the children are victimized here. And even though justice was served, that doesn't bring these four beautiful women back. However, telling their story keeps the memory of them alive and allows us a healthy outlet to discuss the issue of violence against women.
1: Thank you so much. I've been wanting to cover one of these cases. I'm so glad you did because it's an area we really haven't yet gone into. Before we head out today, let's take a supporter question. Now, this question is from Emily. And Megan, I bet I could guess what your answer is. Ready? We'll see. The question is, if you could interview any female offender, who would it be and what would you
0: ask them? Oh, Amy, you can, but you also cannot (laughs) guess this one because I probably have about five answers here.
1: Well, one of yours is Jodi Arias, no? Well, always
0: Jodi Arias. She would be top on the list, but also Casey Anthony, even though she was acquitted, um, I believe she is guilty, and I have a lot of questions. I don't think she would answer them. The problem is, Amy, that some of these people wouldn't answer the questions, but also on my list, for sure, ones that we have covered, um, Betty Broderick, undoubtedly, but also I would love to interview Diane Downs if possible, and, you know, I mean, my list goes on and on.
1: Well, the important question is, what would you ask them, though? Pick one and tell me what you'd ask them. Amy,
0: I'm going to let you go first on this one and think about that.
1: How about you? You know what, Megan? I'm going to have to just go with Carla Homolka because she's been top of mind lately. And Really? Yeah. And I just want to know, how can you victimize your little sister? And like you said, you are not going to get an honest answer, but that's what I want to know.
0: Who would I do? Um... A tough question. Uh, I would. I'll have to go back to my first episode, Betty Broderick, one that has always stuck with me for years. Betty Broderick has not really shown remorse. She's really said things like, "I'm sorry for what they made me do," but now we're talking about over thirty years later. Um. So I would go back and I would ask Betty Broderick at this point in her life, does she feel any remorse or responsibility? for what she did, for murdering her children's father, for murdering Linda. I would really like to know if there's any genuine feeling of remorse
1: there. Excellent. That's an awesome question. Thank you to Emily for asking that.
0: Thank you, Amy. Thank you, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenandcrime. Sources for today's episode include an article in McLean's, an episode of Forbidden, Dying for Love, articles from the Toronto Star, and Stacey Malakote's book, Women in Crime.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s.